You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. We're underway, Heather. Hey. How are you? Hi, Glenn. Pretty good. Well, as good as can be expected. Glenn Lowry here, Brown University, uh, Watson Institute for International Public Affairs and Professor of Economics. Um, and I'm with Heather McDonald, who's senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, prolific writer about matters, political, public policy, and so on. And uh, welcome to the Glenn Show, Heather. Thank you, Glenn. It's glad to be back. Okay, now, the reason I wanted to talk to you, it is good to have you back. I mean, people should know Heather McDonald, the prolific uh, uh, critic, uh, The War Against Cops. Heather, you started a whole thing with that uh, with that book. Uh, do, do you know about Roland Fryer's research on the effects of uh, federal investigations of local police departments? Well, I'm aware it's coming out and will be just as explosive as his earlier uh, uh, study of police shootings. Yeah, there's an unpublished paper. It hasn't yet been, I think, uh, uh, accepted for publication out of Referee Journal, although I may be wrong about that. And it is certain to come out in a good journal. Uh, but the uh, working paper at the National Bureau for Economic Research is available to people. And Roland is finding that uh, police investigations of local departments after a viral uh, shooting incident involving that department are associated with increased uh, violent crime in the cities in question, mainly as a consequence of the reduction of police effort in those very same cities. And I read that. And on the one hand, Heather McDonald is, I don't know, are you a journalist? Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think that's, that's about as much as I deserve. And Roland Fryer is one of these leading uh, quantitative economists. On the other hand, I thought I was channeling Heather McDonald. He was channeling Heather McDonald there when I was reading his summary of the research. So you have, at least to that extent, been vindicated. A most recent book, do I get this right, is uh, The Diversity Delusion, uh, which is a frontal assault on what has become a kind of uh, a fundamental industry in, in the, the part of the world that I work in, higher education, uh, on the uh, uh, religious devotion to a certain view about diversity in terms of demography, race, ethnicity, sexuality, and so forth, and uh, the damage that that is doing to our institutions. Uh, so, you know, I'm very happy to have you here talking about your piece of new criterion called Compared to What, which is a, a, a meditation on the possibility in this time of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 virus, that we might be overreacting a little bit. Um, it, it was a, a courageous thing for you to be saying, and I wondered if you could just share with uh, our viewers a little bit of what your thinking is in that piece. Well, at the time this came out on Friday, I, I put the uh, deaths so far within the United States in the context of traffic fatalities, in the context of, of cancer deaths. Uh, each year, America has about 38, over 38,000 traffic fatalities each year. That's 100 uh, driving fatalities a day. Cancer cases in, in 2019 were 600,000. Uh, and what we've been seeing so far with the COVID-19 deaths don't begin to approximate that. Uh, and we accept a degree of risk uh, that has not been tolerated in this case. Uh, the flu deaths in eight, 2018 and 2019 were 34,000. Again, that's over 100 a day. So far, 
in the United States since the start of this outbreak, we're now at 69 deaths. So if, if worst case happens and we really do get a unabated exponential rate of increase, I, I grant that we could uh, exceed those numbers, but there are many things that can happen in between. And I, I'm not a scientific expert, but what I do observe is that the possibility of a, a global recession, global depression, and the steps we're already taking to shut down the economy have also very serious consequences on people's livelihoods and on their health. So I can't say that I have a magic spot to, to find a middle ground between a reckless laissez-faire attitude and a let's shut everything down, uh, which I think may be not called for. Although, again, I'm, I, I don't purport – I'm glad I'm not making the final decision here. But I, I just think that we should be conscious of a constant cost-benefit analysis, Glenn. Yeah, the economist in me wants to agree very strongly with this point. The point being there is no free lunch. That's right. what that's the way we put it. Everything has a cost including the opportunity cost of what's been foregone because you decided to do this particular thing. Of course, the virus is a threat. Yes, it's a serious threat and one needs to reckon with it, but one also needs to gauge the reckoning by evaluating the benefits from what you do against some benchmark of what it's costing you. Uh, And it's very hard to see how to do that here. It's certainly not being done. It strikes me that one of the reasons, I wonder what you think about this, one of the reasons it's not being done is because um, if you're running one of these institutions, so so I was talking to my colleagues here at Brown about when we were going to shut down, because I knew we were going to shut down. (laughs) Once Harvard shut down, I knew we were going to shut down. It was just a question of when. I have a great deal of respect for the people who run this institution. They're quite competent. Christina Paxson, the president, Rick Locke, the provost, these are not fools. They are serious people. But what could they do? Expose themselves to the possibility that they would be the outlier who didn't shut down and then something over which they have no control goes wrong. They would be completely ruined professionally. Uh, they'd be devastated. So it's so much easier to seek the safety of the crowd by doing the conventional thing. Meanwhile, nobody is doing the calculation about the benefits and the cost. And this is a thing that I find a little bit troubling. Yeah, well, what I've also noticed, what's so interesting in, in my building here in Manhattan, my, my apartment building where I live, 34 stories, uh, all of us knowledge workers are able to work from home, yeah. do all the social distancing. Our jobs continue. Uh, we depend on the people who work in the building, the maintenance workers who have now been put on 24-hour constant cleaning. Uh, a worker cleans all the elevator buttons, uh, the, the doorknobs, goes floor to floor, and then starts all over again uh, when he comes down and fills out a little log like you'd have an elevator inspection sheet in an elevator to reassure us knowledge workers that we're being protected from a virus outbreak in our own building up here on, on uh, in upper Manhattan. Uh, and so on the one hand, uh, there's, I wonder if the elites who are ordering this to shut down 
if if they couldn't rely on the fact that when they go to to plunder the grocery stores uh that there would still be people stocking the shelves uh and that everybody was forced to stay at home uh would they be just as as ready to order this type of shutdown and it's also the case that us knowledge workers are going to be able to ride any economic downturn uh a lot easier than people who are living paycheck to paycheck that you know the restaurants have been ordered closed uh today i don't know what they're going to do with the food and the people who work there uh where are they supposed to turn now so close or just not to serve people sitting in the dining room well, can they still sell food off the, off the window so to speak yeah they can have food deliveries but i think for a lot of restaurants they're not set up for that yeah well I, it's another interesting point that you're raising here uh, the first interesting point being compared to what which is to say how do we evaluate the benefits and costs but this other point is about inequality yeah which you know we there's there's a lot of talk about inequality in the in the wind these days uh but uh, this is an interesting application of the general concern the costs that we're imposing on the society do not fall equally upon every member the burden sharing isn't exactly uniform you know everybody bearing the same weight and that might factor in or should it to the consideration of if i do this the people most uh are hard hit by what i do will be the people who are at least in a position to handle it although you know what the response to that is going to be let's take care of them right. let's expand the social safety net let's have healthcare for all let's make things free yep but let's make sure everybody's got paid leave uh to the infinite degree yeah well, and what do you think about that yeah i think i, I know mean, the answer but <laughs> last week uh, one of the new york times columnists farad manju had a, a signed editorial in the new york times called everyone's a socialist in a pandemic and he was exactly calling for that claiming that somehow the united states has been very stingy in its social welfare net uh which i think is not exactly accurate when you figure the amount of welfare that goes into uh supporting what i would say is choices that are within an individuals to make such as having children out of wedlock uh but but he's absolutely calling for from now on uh, a full time uh way beyond this crisis expansion of of government benefits i would say my reaction is everyone should be a capitalist in a pandemic what i find amazing is as the panic new york city locus strip the grocery stores bare uh the next day the trucks still show up and they're then they're restocked by those stock boys who are not being are not working at home uh and that the economic system in in its infinite complexity at this point is still producing this extraordinary bounty uh that will allow us to go through you know the early reports of toilet paper shortages were apparently greatly exaggerated it's just a uh a problem of of supply getting getting the product into the market uh these panic buyings put suppliers in very difficult positions but yes there's no question that uh this is will be seen as a reason for greatly expanding the scope of government well just on this point about panic buying uh, something i find to be very ironic but again comes naturally to an economist is that 
if you let supermarkets charge whatever the market would what? bear when there's a panic, there wouldn't be a panic. <laughs> if, exactly. if toilet paper were going for 10 bucks a roll, people would find a way of saying, oh, maybe I'll wait until next week to go get my toilet paper. <laughs> that was exactly my response. Hoarding is allowed. You know, people are, are allowed to clear out the shelves, but a a supplier is not allowed to adjust price to meet demand. Again, we don't really have a much better uh, mechanism than the price mechanism for finding that equilibrium between supply and demand. Absolutely right. That, and that it's the same thing, you know, I've also noticed it's always the case that uh, people who enjoy rent control accuse landlords of being greedy. Well, it never occurs to them that maybe they're greedy in expecting to pay below market rent. So it's a complete asymmetry uh, in who gets attacked for, for, you know, trying to look out for himself. The price system is good, people. This is something we, we know from uh, direct experience. Um, Heather, okay, pushback. I have to push back. Of course. Two points. One is about public goods, and the other is about X dot equals AX. That's the exponential generating equation. Public goods is for any given individual going around the corner to the restaurant and buying the sandwich or sitting down for the meal doesn't really impose very much risk upon themselves personally and doesn't make in and of itself a whole lot of difference to the general outcome. But if everybody goes around the corner, sits in their diner, has a drink, uh, uh, socializes and chats, that is a qualitative change in the dynamics of the disease spread, and that's bad for everybody. So you have to have compulsion as a way, you know, it's a, you know, you have to, in effect, draft people into uh, the social project of preventing the spread of disease because left to their own devices, each one of them would act in his own interest, uh, and the cumulative effect of them doing so would be to undermine our public interest. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so that's one concern. I'll mention the other let's concern. Do, let's do one at a time. And you okay, one at a time. Yeah. Public uh, goods. I, I actually, I, I've seen that argument, and that's been leveled against the French for going out and continuing uh, to frequent cafes. There's still a part of me that remembers the 2008 recession, and I cheer on that behavior. Now, again, this is a different situation, but there's a part of me that thinks – well, by going out, you are you are keeping that small business cafe owner or restaurant owner alive, and that I see that as a good thing. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also the cost of everybody staying at home. And, and I'll, let me just finish my thought. I yeah. don't really see New Yorkers, at least, uh, erring on the side of of wild abandon and following their their instincts to go do things. I, th- I think it feels to me in this city like people are being uh, cautious, whether properly or excessively. So I, I don't see that happening, but it, w- it well may be that there are people who would decide to take advantage. But there's also a, a, a public cost issue of everybody staying at home. Uh, on, on as we've been talking about, the economy and that the economy is human life. Again, it's not just uh, this cold hearted uh, buying and trading and making profit as if that's a, a problem because every worker, every, you know, all your fellow professors uh, are also making profits on their labor. I can, I can guarantee you that. Um, 
but but everybody staying home also has a a very negative effect. So finding that sort of dynamic equilibrium of uh, enough people that are able to continue the economy uh, while others stay at home to prevent a, a suddenly burgeoning rate of infection, which I don't think we've seen yet, uh, is, is a difficult matter. But I, I agree, there's tragedies of commons all the time. And I would say yeah. in panics, I mean, it, it, it becomes rational to be irrational. You know, if you, if you, if you don't go hoard when everybody else is, and, and for once the supply chain would not continue supplying this bounty of goods, uh, you'd be the last one with yeah, nothing yeah. left when everybody else... will be bare by the time you get there, so you don't want to be the going to be the last one. Okay, so the other point that I was going to raise, which is related, is uh, the dynamics of exponential growth, uh, with which I'm sure you're familiar. The idea is we take the total number of cases, the rate at which that changes is proportional to the absolute size of the problem. So it's going to be growing, and then it gets bigger, and it's going to grow even faster. And then as it's bigger, it's going to grow even faster, unless you can somehow tamp down uh, the the proportionality factor. That is, unless you can make it for a given no- total number of cases, a smaller percentage of those that lead to uh, new cases. You want the new cases to be a smaller proportion of the total number of cases that you can possibly make them. So in thinking in that uh, logic, two points. One is you want to do things that mitigate the spread and secondly, you need to be mindful of the fact that the problem will get out of hand if you allow it to get too big. This is what Dr. Fauci is saying. He's saying when he says, I can't possibly be overly reacting. You're going to think I'm overreacting. That means I'm probably doing the right thing because I'm trying to limit the rate at which this thing spreads so that it doesn't get to a point where there's any sense, nothing that we can do to kind of contain it. What do you think about that? And that, therefore, might require very draconian intervention. Yeah. Well, you know, there was also, we've, we've been through other uh, pandemic warnings, you know, H1N1, swine flu, SARS and MERS, Zika, and, and that didn't happen. I mean, were those not thought to be exponential in their growth patterns as well? Uh, I, I just don't recall the same panic happening and I don't know what the circuit breakers were that stopped that rate of growth, but it seems like we have had some crying of wolf in the past, which does not mean that this time the wolf is not at the door. Uh, But just as this was unpredictable, arguably in its, its uh, onset, it's also very hard to predict uh, what might, might intervene. Now, policymakers have to make these judgments. Uh, I'm not sure. Are, are scientists always right? Is science now completely free from politics? Not necessarily, uh, from what I've been observing with the diversity ideology that's taking over science, incredibly to my mind. So I, I don't know, but but we've had other pandemics in the past uh, or alleged ones in the recent past that did not reach that breakout stage. Again, that having been said, I'm I'm sorry to keep qualifying back and forth, but we're both operating in ignorance. You know, it does seem like uh, 
Italy is, is, is a tragedy. It's hard hit. I would focus, as you suggest, Glenn, really target the resources, and that means stepping up hospital capacity right now, which I think we are doing. Uh, and, you know, the, so far the data continues to be the case that the overwhelming number of fatalities are people who are elderly, have existing respiratory ailments, uh, and, uh, you know, they may have been in the hospital anyway. This is not to say that their deaths are not uh, as, as tragic as anybody else, uh, but it is not something that is going to uh, take down the entire society and radically uh, increase its mortality rate, at least with what we're seeing so far. I think this point is well taken that the uh, heterogeneity, I should say, the differences in the population of susceptibility to, to illness offer the possibility of targeting so that you can focus your attention on the, the part of the population that is most that is most at risk. Uh, I do want to say, I mean, neither you nor I are epidemiologists, and there's an awful lot to know about the natural history of these uh, outbreaks. Um, I was told, for example, I think it was Zika, that one of the reasons that the um, outbreak did die down is because it was so deadly that people who did contract the virus expired soon enough that they didn't have as much of a chance to pass it on to someone else, which is a kind of, you know, uh, uh, morbid uh, irony uh, in the in the situation. Um, I gather that some of the important parameters will be uh, the uh, degree of contagion, you know, so how easy is it to pick it up from somebody else, uh, as well as the life cycle of the disease, you know, how long does it take before it works itself through? Have you heard, by the way, these speculations, I just heard this on the radio, that uh, some people are uh, advising that maybe the best thing to do is to allow a country's population to become infected to the extent that it would develop natural immunities. Of course, some of them are not going to make it, uh, but the net effect of that would be to kind of let a fire burn itself out and then you'd get on the other side of the dynamic and you'd be, you know, more or less home, home free. Um, I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, that had been the stated policy in England, uh, Britain under Boris Johnson. I predicted that he would be forced to back down from that. I think he has already. Yeah. Uh, but as of last week, that, that was his, his uh, idea. And I'm all in favor of natural experiments, you know, let it's a good thing to have different countries, respond differently to this. Uh, so, yeah. and, you know, the mortality rate, the, the initial estimates were, were grossly inflated, 3 4%. It's obviously, you know, a function of we don't yet know the denominator. Uh, I think really what matters is not so much the rate as the absolute number of deaths. And, and so far, again, they're a pittance, <laughs> I, I know it's early in the, in the United States, but 69 deaths uh, countrywide, most of them still concentrated in Washington State around that uh, one. Yeah, that nursing home. Nursing home is still still not a hell of a lot. Uh, so yeah, again, but it's it's bound to be more, and you stick your neck out when you say something like this because if I we agree. Look back month and it's 10,000, you're not going to look so great. Yeah, I know. I know. And it, it has doubled. It's almost doubled over the last uh, three days. So 
we'll see we'll see what happens and it and it could be that we're absolutely just on the start of this so i i i completely agree and i i should have qualified that even earlier yeah okay um how do you think the administration is handling the crisis well we definitely do not have a winston churchill at the helm that's for sure okay that's uh, true trump's rhetoric is is not reassuring um he just, just simply does not have uh, the eloquence or the ability to get out of his own uh, narrow self-interest in this. That having been said, I don't fault him for his not particularly eloquent efforts in the beginning to try to tamp down concern. I think, I think there's enough people sending out messages of, of fear that it is appropriate to have a leader saying we will get through this in, in as however uh, inarticulately. I, but, but however inaccurately, because you can't be saying this is just no. like the flu if it's not like the flu. You can't be saying we've only had five dead as if, you know, that was going to be the extent of it when it could be 5,000 or 500,000, et cetera. That, that's, that's true. Uh, those are his words. As far as the actions go, um, I, 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 I still don't really know how the CDC screwed up in its test kit thing. I, it gets said all the time that it did screw up. I don't know where the, the fault lies or what it did wrong. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a political issue. It's the CDC is not a Trump organ. That's a relatively freestanding institution. Uh, I'm not able to criticize what the, uh, rollout has been so far. I, I think we didn't. I, I, I completely understand if if it's the received wisdom is that it was too slow. Uh, I probably in that position would not have jumped into crisis mode myself at that point. I think these are understandable reactions to take a somewhat of a wait and see attitude. Like you, I was not unsympathetic to the president's effort to say, let's stay calm. We'll get through this. This is not the worst thing in the world. We can handle this. I, I, I didn't mind that. I, I found that to be somewhat reassuring. What troubled me a little bit, though, was that um, our president lacks a certain talent, which in a situation like this is a very valuable thing, which is the ability to look the camera in the eye, to speak in a soft and comforting tone, to to kind of... Uh, convey a, a confidence. I mean, I, I don't know if you share this view, but I watched his uh, Oval Office address, and I was really uh, stunned by how uncertain he looked, how um, nervous he seemed to be. Um, I mean, it was not only what he was saying, but in a way it was how he was saying it, and it was it was disquieting. And then the next day, the market fell through the floor. So, yeah. uh, you know, this is not... You know, whatever the merits and demerits of Trump, this is not his uh, wheelhouse handling this kind of thing in terms of the public presentation. Not the time to tell me that you're doing a good job. I mean, I grant that you should be doing a good job. I want to believe that you're doing a good job. But perhaps not the time to pat yourself on the back about how good a job you're doing. Yeah, I, I was traveling last week, so I didn't see the most recent press conferences I think one of the first ones uh, where he was kind of jokey, um, that yeah. one didn't bother me so much. I, 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 I kind of uh, liked the sense of 
his being in control. But I otherwise completely agree with you. Uh, he does not have those emotional resources uh, that are necessary to seem like he is a, a, a leader of, at the, the, the size that is needed right now. So we'll see, you know, whether his leadership style takes him down, whether the economy takes him down, uh, the political roller coaster we've been on in, a, in a, taking this out of the realm of, of life and death into the more quotidian, trivial life of politics. Yeah. It's simply stunning. It is just, it is beyond belief. It's a, you know, Sophocles could not have written a better uh, play about hubris and the yeah. wheel of fortune striking down those who, you know, vaunt that they are somehow impervious to the, the, the changing fate. It's, it's quite amazing. Well, um, uh, my, my lovely wife, Lawan, I love her dearly. She's a liberal Democrat, Heather. What can I say? I love her dearly. She envisioned the following uh, scenario as a kind of Shakespearean uh, denouement for the president whom she hates. Namely, that he gets the virus and that it kills him. Okay. <laughs> so we have to see him, you know, suffering under the illness, you know, shrouded by doctors and whatnot. And then he expires and, you know, we got it. We got it. <laughs> and with that, the play, the curtain calls, we all go, but we're, nobody will be able to see the play because, you know, Broadway's closed. So we'll have to wait. <laughs> but um, what do you think about the politics of it? Do you think the press have been fair? Are they are they sort of ginning this up? Is this a, a quote a hoax like uh, where fake news uh, want it to be worse than it actually is because they hate this guy and they want him to go down? Well, I I don't think I don't join a lot of my more conservative colleagues in in saying this is all a hoax. Uh, it's certainly not. I mean that is a, that's an absurd situ uh, a claim. Yeah. But I I have to admit. Uh, let's be non-naive here and and acknowledge that it is hard to avoid missing the sort of smacking of the lips that finally after the cratering of the russian you know uh, collusion and then ukraine that this is yeah. this is just uh heaven it's 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 pure mana that's that's fallen from heaven for the for the media that does uh hate trump and there's inevitably a whole chorus tearing down every pronouncement he makes in ways that sometimes I think is not justified. Uh, but, but I think that it's not just political. There's obviously also a economic self-interest in covering a story that is particularly people like watching catastrophe. There's sort of a schadenfreude spectator sport aspect to it. But I've also been listening to, uh, Italian TV Rye and, and, uh, a German, Deutsche Welle, and there's, at least on Rye, there's saturation coverage there too, but with less, there's no question, much less of a political angle than you get here from MSNBC and CNN, but but I don't think that this is a media creation. It's, it's obviously real. At the same time, uh, I think that the spin on the uh, left-wing channels has been quite obvious, just as the uh, spin on Fox has been been obvious as well. You know, one of the things I, I agree there's a spin. I also agree they didn't make this up. This is real, and we had better take it as being real. But but uh, I'm amused a little bit by some of the stuff I see. So, for example, to call it the Wuhan virus is a cheap shot 
you know, uh, denigrating and uh, uh, the Chinese and racist and whatnot like that. Why are we finger pointing when we've got a global crisis that we should be healing? On the other hand, to point a finger at Trump as being an incompetent and a boob on the editorial page of the New York Times or whatever is perfectly fair game. So we wouldn't want to blame the Chinese. That would be wrong. But we can blame Trump. He doesn't have any control over the fact that this virus is uh, abroad in the land. So that I find to be somewhat amusing. But here's a, maybe a final point. It seems to me that this could be um, a blow to populism, broadly speaking, as a kind of political slash philosophical disposition and a blow in favor of expertise. That, that, that's one of my themes as I try to think about what's going on in global politics. The experts, you know, the quote unquote deep state, not just nefariously trying to undo Trump, but simply having the prerogative of knowledge. We are the PhDs. We are the experienced experts on the one hand versus the demos, the people. The ones who, for example, took to Donald Trump in 2016 and made him president of the United States. Um, the ones who aren't so sure about uh, transgender, this or that. Uh, the ones who are, uh, you know, a little bit behind the woke sensibility about whatever the latest issue might be. These people versus the experts. So uh, now, I mean, I listened to Joe Biden give that speech that he gave the other day uh, in uh, uh, the, the day after Trump's Oval Office address, uh, Biden riding high because Bernie Sanders had been suddenly eclipsed. Talk about uh, tables turning politically. Um, and uh, he said, let's trust the experts. It seems to me that that was a, a principal theme of that speech. Let's trust the experts. Of course, uh, conservatives or Republicans who don't believe in science, they don't believe in climate change. So I guess, again, I'm asking your view. I see this uh, horrible experience as strengthening the hands of people who say, defer to the experts on whatever it might be, how to deal with foreign policy questions, what to do about the uh, climate change or whatever. Defer to the experts. Get the politicians out of the way. What do you think? Well, interesting. Uh, I mean, I've been thinking almost the opposite in that it this seems to support a lot of the Peter Navarro view of the world, the oh, Trump keep the borders closed. Okay. restrictionist uh, economic yeah. policy guy. Uh, and you hear now across this political spectrum, people railing about the fact that we've outsourced so much of our pharmaceutical uh, manufacturing and ingredients to China. And now, you know, I'm speaking to the economist here. It's the theory of comparative advantage is a very powerful one, and it's hard to imagine every country manufacturing all of its own goods without uh, global trade and and putting some parts in other. And at the same time, we've also been hearing all about, for years now, drug prices are so high, and yet people are now talking about taking all of the manufacturing back to the United States. Well, that's going to increase prices. Uh, because the reason it's been outsourced is is to lower the price for consumers. Uh, but but I would also say this has vindicated the idea of borders. So to me, uh, in in one sense, I would say it, it strengthens a populist view. Also, what I've been thinking about, Glenn, is, uh, you know, when are we going to start up the trans crusade again? And the the narcissism of these 
minute differences and the power play of getting other people to bend to one's will with regards to pronoun use, all of that sounds pretty uh, uh, trivial at this point. And uh, as even Bill de Blasio recognized in calling on people to not hoard face masks and hand sanitizers, he said, because we want our first responders uh, to have access to them. In, in a public emergency crisis, uh, it's not the pajama boys that are going to go into danger and continue working. It's the, it's the firefighters, it's the policemen. Are we going to call in the army eventually? Uh, and to me, this uh, resurrects, frankly, a more traditional view of masculinity, people that are willing to uh, run into the face <laughs> of danger rather than away from it. Yeah, they live in Staten Island, not the Upper East Side. Right. <laughs> this is this is pretty interesting. Um, okay, Heather, uh, I think uh, we've at least touched on this. Uh, maybe we can have another conversation if we're both still alive in a few weeks. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and if our if our economy is that's that's more what I'm worried about. Uh, I mean, let me just say I am an economist on the trade thing. No, we don't want to shut down trade. We don't want countries all to be autonomous and produce that's the road to serfdom that's a way of impoverishing ourselves on the other hand uh we do want to not be fools in terms of the strategic interaction with other players right. who know what they want and know what they're doing and the chinese are one of them that's not a laissez-faire uh you know innocuous system that's over there they've got their own agenda and they've got their own thing so we need to we need to take that on board i i would have thought that the most uh important implication of the navarro view of the world is Look at who's coming across your border and don't just let them walk across your border. Yep. I mean, you want to have control over that. Yep. You know? yep. Um, I'm not sure how anybody argues against that now. I mean, I am not one to uh, facilely give Trump credit for anything because I, I think he does not have the character to fit the office. Nevertheless, I find it striking uh, that despite his usual uh, jumping at any opportunity to say, I told you so, or Devant, if I were Trump in his usual Trumpian way, I would be saying all the time, you see, I told you so. Uh, this yeah. vindicates borders. It vindicates uh, an American first trade policy. He has not done that. I don't know why, because he never exercises any self-restraint up to now, but it's, it's very odd what's going on. Well, maybe some of the advisors have gotten through to him and say, don't play into their hands. They're being his enemies in the press. Uh, I did hear him uh, in a news conference today. Today is Monday, the 16th of March, say, uh, when asked about would he bail out the airlines, he said, yeah, we're going to stand behind the airlines. It's not their fault. It's not anybody's fault, uh, except maybe for the originators, not originators, he made reference to the origins of the of the plague, uh, which was an indirect reference to Wuhan. Uh, but it was very it was very minor. I mean, he didn't play on it, but he did say it. He did say it's nobody's fault except maybe where it came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was as much as he would allow himself. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm not about to say that China should have been more draconian than they were. I I don't know. I don't, you know, I I don't have the facts. I mean, if they did, uh, you know, arrest some of the doctors who were sounding a warning and try to make it go away, then that would be one thing. But how do we know? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. 
It's not, it's not, a, it's not out of the range of possibility, that's for sure, but uh, we don't know. And we'll never know because there's no press over there that's uh, free to report on that kind of thing. We don't have a problem of the Chinese government leaking the inside deliberations of its uh, cadres um, or the benefit of that. Well, okay. you know, well, I think so far there's not been many due process concerns yet raised here, but uh, that's always, that's another balance, you know, that we certainly saw after 9-11 of uh, security versus uh, liberties and, and one that China obviously doesn't have to worry about. Indeed, I'm going to let that be the last word. Thanks so much, Heather, for your time. Great conversation, Glenn. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.